Salvation Outside the Church, Tracing the History of the Catholic Response by Francis A. Sullivan, S.J. Chapter 10, Anonymous Christians. The development in Catholic thinking about salvation for those outside the church since Vatican II is centered on the question of the means by which non-Christians can arrive at salvation. There is no doubt about the conciliar teaching that people who never arrive at Christian faith and baptism can be saved. Indeed, as we have seen, the doctrine of Vatican II on this point is characterized by an optimism which Karl Rahner has described as a more momentous change in Catholic thinking than even the acceptance of the notion of Episcopal collegiality. The post-conciliar discussion of the question of the means by which non-Christians can be saved is analogous to the discussion that took place during the Council with regard to the salvific role of the other Christian churches. There, the question was solved by the recognition that the Holy Spirit makes use of the other Christian churches and ecclesial communities as means of salvation for those who belong to them. The question since the Council has been whether we can recognize a salvific role for the non-Christian religions. In other words, whether they also can be seen as means of salvation for those who belong to them. A further question concerns the salvation of people who belong to no religion at all. Here again, the question is not whether they can be saved, Vatican II clearly affirms that they can, but how salvation is mediated to them. We shall first see what light the texts of the Council throw on these questions. Then we shall look briefly at two very contrasting answers which have been given by non-Catholic theologians. The rest of the chapter will be a presentation of the thought of Karl Rahner as the Catholic theologian who has been most prominent in the discussion of these questions since the Council. We shall also consider the objections which some leading Catholic theologians have raised against Rahner's theories. Vatican II on Salvation in Ways Known Only to God The first point I would note in the teaching of the Council is that in some texts in which it speaks of the way in which the grace of salvation comes to those who are not reached by the church's direct ministry, it seems to describe this offer of grace as though it were a work of God alone. Thus, in its decree on the missionary activity of the church, Ad Gentis, the council says, Though God, in ways known to himself, can lead those inculpably ignorant of the gospel to that faith without which it is impossible to please him, Hebrews 11.6. Yet a necessity lies upon the church and at the same time a sacred duty to preach the gospel, A.G. 7. Similarly, in Gaudium et Spes, having described Christians as being linked with the paschal mystery and thus hastening toward resurrection in the strength which comes from hope, the Council goes on to say, All this holds true not only for Christians, but for all men of goodwill, in whose hearts grace works in an unseen way. For since Christ died for all men, and since the ultimate vocation of man is in fact one and divine, we must believe that the Holy Spirit, in a manner known only to God, offers to every man the possibility of being associated with this Paschal mystery. Gaudium et Spes 22. 
The impression one might get from the texts we have cited is that where the church's ministry of word and sacrament is not available, it is God, the Holy Spirit, alone who accomplishes the work of bringing Christ's saving grace to people. There is no hint in these texts that in dealing with people who have no contact with the church, the Spirit might make use of other means, such as might be found in their own religions, as created helps toward salvation. It is also significant that both of these texts describe this work of the Spirit as taking place in ways that are known only to God. This suggests a reluctance on the part of the council to specify other means which might be used when the church's preaching and sacraments are not available. However, another text of Gaudium et Spes suggests a relationship between the activity of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of all people and the role of religion in their lives. She, the church, knows that man is constantly worked upon by God's Spirit and hence can never be altogether indifferent to the problems of religion. The experience of past ages proves this, as do numerous indications in our own times. For man will always yearn to know, at least in an obscure way, what is the meaning of his life, of his activity, of his death. Gaudium et Spes 41 The reference to the experience of past ages suggests that in the religions of the world one can find a manifestation of this constant working of the Spirit, since it is in their religions that people have sought the response to their yearning to know the meaning of their life, activity, and death. This raises the question whether there are elements in non-Christian religions that can be attributed to the presence and activity of the Holy Spirit. The Second Vatican Council has spoken more positively about non-Christian religions than any official document of the Catholic Church had ever done before. We must now look at the conciliar texts to see whether they offer any support for the idea that the Holy Spirit is at work in non-Christian religions and is the source of positive elements that are found in them. Vatican II on the Positive Elements in Non-Christian Religions As is well known, the Second Vatican Council devoted one of its documents to the consideration of the relations between the Church and the non-Christian religions, Nostra Aetate. We shall have to look closely at that document, but first we shall take note of the references to the non-Christian religions, which are found in several other documents of the Council. Lumen Gentium, when describing the missionary activity of the Church, refers to the good that is found sown, not only in the hearts and minds of people, but also in their rites and customs. The term rites undoubtedly refers to non-Christian religious practices. The text goes on to say that through the missionary work of the Church, the good that is found in such rites and customs not only is saved from destruction, but is purified, heightened, and perfected. Lumen Gentium 17 The decree on the Church's missionary activity contains several references to the non-Christian religions. The first of these seems to reflect the view that such religions represent purely human endeavors to reach out to God. However, even such human initiatives fall under the sway of divine providence and can serve as preparation for the gospel. This universal design of God for the salvation of the human race is not carried out exclusively in a person's soul with a kind of secrecy 
nor is it achieved merely through those multiple endeavors, including religious ones, by which people search for God, groping for him that they may by chance find him, though he is not far from any one of us. See Acts 17.27. For these initiatives need to be enlightened and purified, even though, through the kindly workings of divine providence, they may sometimes serve as pedagogy toward the true God, or as a preparation for the gospel. A.G. 3. Other passages of this decree, however, suggest that there are elements in the non-Christian religions which are not the fruit of merely human initiative, but have been sown there by the Holy Spirit. Thus, whatever elements of truth and grace are to be found among the nations are described as a sort of secret presence of God. A.G. 9. Again, missionaries are exhorted to make themselves familiar with the national and religious traditions of those to whom they are sent, and gladly and respectfully to uncover the seeds of the word which lie hidden in those traditions. A.G. 11. The term seeds of the word is drawn from the writings of St. Justin Martyr, whose ideas about the presence of the Logos, or word of God, among the Gentiles, have been mentioned earlier in this book. In another passage of Agentis, we are told that it is the Holy Spirit who calls all men to Christ through the seeds of the word and by the preaching of the gospel. A.G. 15. This suggests a preliminary working of the Spirit who has already sown the seeds of the word, presumably in the non-Christian religious traditions, before the missionaries arrive to preach the gospel. In these passages, it is clear that the Council intends to recognize the presence in non-Christian religions, not only of human values, but of divine gifts. It is important to note that these are described not only as manifestations of goodness or holiness in non-Christians as persons, but as objective elements in their religious traditions and rites. There is a brief reference to such elements also in the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, which encourages Catholics to engage in dialogue with people of other religions, who preserve in their traditions precious elements of religion and humanity. Gaudimetsbez 92. Finally, we come to the conciliar document which treats explicitly of the non-Christian religions, Nostra Aetate. Here we must begin by making a distinction between the two religions which, in different degrees, are based on biblical revelation, namely Judaism and Islam, and all the other religions. At this point, we are asking to what extent Vatican II has recognized the presence of elements of divine origin in other religions. It is obvious that it recognized such elements in Judaism and Islam, Hence, we shall focus our attention on what it says about the other non-Christian religions. Nostra Aetate contains the most fully elaborated statement which Vatican II has made with regard to the positive elements to be found in the non-biblical religions. It singles out Hinduism and Buddhism for special mention as religions which have instilled the lives of people with a profound religious sense. Then it goes on to say, Likewise, other religions to be found everywhere strive variously to answer the restless searchings of the human heart by proposing ways, which consist of teachings, 
rules of life, and sacred ceremonies. The Catholic Church rejects nothing which is true and holy in these religions. She looks with sincere respect upon those ways of conduct and life, those rules and teachings which, though differing in many particulars from what she holds and sets forth, nevertheless often reflect a ray of that truth which enlightens all men. The Church, therefore, has this exhortation for her sons, prudently and lovingly, through dialogue and collaboration with the followers of other religions, and in witness of Christian faith and life, acknowledge, preserve, and promote the spiritual and moral goods found among these men, as well as the values in their society and culture. Nostra Etate 2 it is time to sum up what we have seen in the references to the non-Christian religions in the documents of Vatican II. One extremely important affirmation here is that the universal design of God for the salvation of the human race is not carried out exclusively in people's souls with a kind of secrecy. Agentis three. In other words, we can expect that there will be some kind of visible, tangible, mediations involved, which will be used by God in carrying out the divine plan of salvation. Secondly, there is clear recognition of the presence in the non-Christian religions of seeds of the word, an array of that truth which enlightens all men. In other words, the council does not hesitate to acknowledge the divine origin of some elements in those religions. It likewise recognizes that such elements can serve as pedagogy toward the true God, but it also insists that such elements have to be purified and further enlightened by the Christian message. The key idea seems to be that the positive elements in the non-Christian religions can be recognized as preparation for the gospel. Along with its positive attitude toward the possibility of salvation for non-Christians, the Council continues to insist on the necessity of preaching the gospel to those who have not yet heard it. Vatican II provides no support for the idea that, given the presence of positive elements in the non-Christian religions, there is no further urgency about Christian missionary endeavor. At the same time, there is an unavoidable question here, given the fact that after almost 2,000 years of missionary effort, less than a third of the world's people are Christians. Of the other two-thirds, the great majority belong to one of the non-Christian religions. We cannot realistically expect that a great portion of them will become Christians during their lifetime. And yet, we must believe that the universal, salvific will of God embraces every one of those millions of men and women who will live and die as adherents of a non-Christian religion. Vatican II has assured us that the design of God for their salvation will not be carried out exclusively in their souls, with a kind of secrecy. It has also recognized the presence of a number of positive elements in the religions which these people practice. While the Council has not said so explicitly, it would seem reasonable to conclude that the positive elements in non-Christian religions must enter into God's plan of salvation for the people who adhere to those religions. The question which the Council did not answer and which has been the subject of intense discussion since then, is whether it is right to go beyond acknowledging the presence of some positive elements in non-Christian religions and to recognize those religions themselves as mediating salvation to those who belong to them. Can non-Christian religions serve as 
mediations of salvation. In the previous chapter, we have seen that the Council described the Church as the universal sacrament of salvation. Our understanding of this is that the Church is both sign and instrument of salvation wherever and however it takes place. As universal sacrament, the Church has a unique role. It is the one divinely instituted, public, social sign of the entire work of salvation which God is accomplishing in the world. Furthermore, we have proposed that, as priestly people, the Church also has a universal role of mediation and the divine offer of saving grace, especially through its celebration of the Eucharist. On the other hand, to identify the offering of the Eucharist as fulfilling a universal role of mediation of salvation by no means excludes other ways in which the Church mediates the grace of salvation. She does this, in the first place, by her work of evangelization, and then by her ongoing ministry of the Word of God and the sacraments. However, such mediation is not universal, since there are so many people whom the Church does not reach with her direct ministry. Now, if the Church's universal mediation as priestly people does not exclude other ways in which the Church mediates salvation, neither does it a priori exclude the possibility that the Holy Spirit might make use of other non-ecclesial realities as mediations of salvation. In other words, to ascribe to the Church a universal role of mediation does not necessarily mean ascribing to it an exclusive role of mediation. The question is left open whether it would be consistent with Christian faith to recognize non-Christian religions as also having a role of mediation in the salvation of those who belong to them. An adequate discussion of the various answers that have been given to this question would require another book. As I have indicated above, it is my intention to present the answer which Karl Rahner has given and to discuss it in the light of the criticisms which other Catholic theologians have expressed regarding his views. Thus, I shall mainly be concerned with the intra-Catholic debate on this issue. But first, I shall very briefly indicate how this question has been answered by some non-Catholic theologians. Two contrasting points of view. At one end of the spectrum, we find the negative view which has been expressed by Endrick Kramer in his views on the Christian mission. Following the lead of Karl Barth, Kramer sees all religions as fundamentally wrong ways of approaching God. In the light of Christ, who of God was made wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, one may say that when we probe more deeply into the religions in one way or another, they are shown to be religions of self-redemption self-justification, and self-sanctification, and so to be in their ultimate and essential meaning and significance, erroneous. For Barrett and Kramer, the non-Christian religions are human strivings to achieve salvation and are doomed to failure. Salvation, on the contrary, is a gift of divine grace, which comes only through Jesus Christ. Salvation, therefore, can be had exclusively through faith in God's revelation in Jesus Christ. This view, it must be noted, is shared by many fundamentalist Christians and serves as a strong motive for their missionary work. At the other end of the spectrum, we find the view whose most vigorous exponent in recent years is John Hick. He advocates a Copernican revolution 
whereby Christianity, instead of being the center of the religious universe, would, like the other religions, be centered rather on God. In other words, he advocates a theocentric pluralism in which salvation can be found in any of the various religions that make up the religious universe. As is obvious, such a theory involves rejecting what has always been understood to be the central affirmation of Christian faith, that Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God and Savior of the whole world. What Hick denies is not merely the universal role of the church, but the universal role of Christ in the divine plan of salvation. For Hick, Jesus Christ is but one of several agents of God's plan, and consequently, the Christian religion is but one of several equally valid ways of salvation. As must be obvious, Hick's theory is incompatible with Christian belief that Jesus Christ is the incarnate Word of God. What he calls the myth of Christian uniqueness depends on what he calls the myth of God incarnate. For Hick, neither of these Christian beliefs is any longer tenable. It is evident that the fundamental question here is whether Jesus Christ is truly the unique Son of God or merely the human founder of one of the many religions through which God intends to work out his plan of salvation. It is simply not possible, within the scope of the present book, to enter into the discussion of what is no longer merely a question of the role of the church, but the more fundamental question of the role of Christ in the divine plan for the salvation of the world. Others have done so, and no doubt much will still be written on it. I will say only that I do not see how a Catholic could espouse the kind of religious pluralism that John Hick and others are advocating. But since it would take me well beyond the limits of the present book to give an adequate treatment of that question, I feel justified in restricting myself to a discussion of the views of Catholics who accept the teaching of Vatican II about the possibility of salvation for non-Christians and about the presence of positive elements in their religions, but at the same time insist that Jesus Christ is the unique Savior of the world and that the Church of Christ is the universal sacrament of salvation. Catholics who remain within these parameters still differ on the question whether non-Christian religions can be described as ways of salvation for those who belong to them. We shall now consider the answer which Karl Rahner has given to this question. Karl Rahner on the Anonymous Christians We begin with those elements of Rahner's theology which show how utterly opposed he is to the kind of religious pluralism advocated by John Hick and others today. For Rahner, there is no grace for salvation but the grace of Christ, of which the Church of Christ is the tangible, historical presence in the world. Hence, Christianity is the absolute religion destined for all humanity, after the coming of which all other religions are objectively abrogated. The salvation of the individual requires that the person respond to divine revelation with an act of supernatural faith, and in some real sense this faith must be ultimately directed to Christ as the mediator of salvation. At first sight, these conditions would seem to make salvation impossible for non-Christians. And yet Rahner insists that the salvific will of God embraces every human person without exception, even though he admits that we are left in ignorance as to how this is realized for those who die unbaptized before reaching the age of reason. Since God's salvific will is universal, 
he must offer his saving grace to everyone. And since there is no salvation without faith, which has to be a personal response to divine revelation, Rahner concludes that the universal offer of grace must include the revelation necessary to ground a response of faith. This involves his notion of grace as God's self-communication to the human spirit. This divine self-communication, as offered to human freedom and prior to being accepted, already affects a change in the recipient's unreflexive consciousness and gives them a supernatural capacity of responding to the divine offer. At this point, they may have no explicit concept of God and know nothing about Christ, and yet God is revealing himself to them in the very offer of his grace. And their free, positive response to God revealing himself has the nature of an act of faith. This positive response to the divine self-communication takes place in their fundamental option to accept a demand of their conscience as absolutely binding, since in doing so they implicitly direct themselves toward God as the source of such an absolute demand, and as the ultimate reason for submitting to it. The demand of their conscience will require them to transcend their egoism and to love others as themselves, and the love of neighbor is ultimately love of God. Thus, their graced response to the divine self-communication will involve acts of faith and charity, and hence the gift of supernatural friendship with God. Such persons may still know nothing about Christ, but since Christ is the source of the grace they have received, their faith and love are objectively directed toward him also, even though they may never have the opportunity to arrive at explicit Christian faith or membership in the church. To describe such persons who are living by the grace of Christ without knowing him, Rahner has coined the term anonymous Christians. They are not members of the church since they lack explicit Christian faith and baptism, but they are in spiritual communion with the church which is the sacramental sign of the life of Christ's grace, which they share without knowing its source. Rahner on the salvific role of non-Christian religions. Rahner insists that the anonymous Christian's response to God's self-communication cannot be understood as a purely inward, private affair. He fully endorses the statement of Vatican II that God's saving design is not carried out exclusively in people's souls with a kind of secrecy. The essentially social nature of human existence calls for some kind of communal expression of people's response to God. Normally, this will take the form of the religion which is part of their culture. Rahner concludes that, when Christianity is not a viable option, it must be within the providential design of God that people express their worship of God in the religion which is available to them. In other words, even though the non-Christian religions are objectively abrogated by the advent of Christianity, they continue to be legitimate religions for people who are inculpably ignorant of any obligation on their part to abandon the religion of their culture and to embrace Christianity. Rahner insists that this means that until non-Christians become so convinced of their obligation to accept Christianity that it would be a mortal sin for them not to do so, their own religion continues to be the way in which God must intend that they express their relationship with him and arrive at their salvation. Needless to say, he agrees with Vatican II in presuming that those who have heard the Christian message and have not yet accepted it are in good faith 
and are not guilty of sin in remaining in their own religion. From this it follows that the non-Christian religions must remain, under God's providence, legitimate ways of salvation for the majority of the world's people. They are provisional ways, to be sure, objectively rendered obsolete by the advent of Christianity. They are not to be thought of as ways of salvation independent of Christ, who is the unique source of the grace by which their adherents are saved. But Rahner insists that because of the role which the non-Christian religions play in the divine plan of salvation for a great part of the world's people, we can reasonably expect to find supernatural elements in them, which make them apt to serve as mediations of divine grace. He further insists that a salvific role cannot be denied to the non-Christian religions on the grounds of the limitations and aberrations that may be found in them. He points out that even in the Hebrew religion, certain elements needed to be corrected and purified as time went on, and that this did not contradict its being the way of salvation for the Hebrew people. It is time now to consider some of the objections that have been raised against Rahner's theories regarding the anonymous Christian and the salvific role of the non-Christian religions. The question of the church's missionary task. The objection which Rahner seems to have taken most seriously and to which he devoted the most space in his writings was that his theory would effectively deprive the church's missionary task of its necessary motivation. In other words, if people are already anonymous Christians, and if they can find salvation in their own religions, there would seem to be no point in trying to convert them to Christianity. The first point in Rahner's answer to this objection is that, in the light of the clear teaching of Vatican II, we can no longer base missionary effort on the motive that no one can be saved without explicit Christian faith, baptism, and membership in the church. Any Catholic who wishes to justify the work of evangelization must reckon with the optimism which is now the Catholic Church's official attitude regarding the salvation of people who will never become Christians. Secondly, this optimism about ultimate salvation for non-Christians must include the recognition that many of them must already be living in the state of supernatural grace. But it is sound Catholic doctrine to attribute all such grace to Christ whose cross and resurrection are the source of salvation for all humanity. Vatican II clearly teaches this when it says, We must believe that the Holy Spirit offers to everyone the possibility of being associated with the Paschal Mystery. Gaudium et Spes 22 From this it follows that if we are optimistic about the salvation of non-Christians, we must believe that many of them, without explicit Christian faith, are nonetheless living in the grace of Christ. And this is precisely what Rahner intends to say when he describes such people as anonymous Christians. Furthermore, he insists that the very success of missionary effort depends on the presence of such people among those to whom the gospel is being preached, on the grounds that it is those who are already positively responding to God's self-communication and grace who will be the best disposed to respond to the message of the gospel. There is still the objection, however, that if people are already being saved as anonymous Christians, and if their own religions are ways of salvation for them, then it would seem better to leave them in good faith in their own religion than to try to convert them to Christianity. To this objection, Rahner offers a twofold response. 
The first is based on the nature of the church as the social, incarnational presence of the grace of Christ in the world. The very nature of the church demands that it strive to become visibly present in every culture and in every historical context, just as the grace of Christ, which was at work in the world from the beginning of the human race, had to become incarnate in the historical Jesus. So also this grace must express its incarnational nature in the visible presence of the church, which demands the ongoing effort to plant the church wherever there is no vital Christian community. His second reply concerns the reason for making the effort to evangelize people who can find salvation in their own religions. Here his answer is based on the fullness of the life of grace which only membership in the church can provide. Being a member of the church does not guarantee a person's salvation, nor make it easier, but it does provide the opportunity to realize a greater fullness of life in Christ than would be available to anonymous Christians. Objections Raised by Catholic Theologians We shall now consider the objections which have been raised against Rahner's theory by four prominent Catholic theologians, Henri de Lubac, Hans Urs von Balthasar, Hans Kung, and Max Seckler. Henri de Lubac's criticism is directed principally against Rahner's use of the term anonymous Christianity. While he admits that there is theological justification for speaking of individuals as anonymous Christians, he objects to the term anonymous Christianity on the grounds that this would suggest that the non-Christian religions would constitute an anonymous Christianity. As de Lubac sees it, this would mean that the Christian revelation would simply make explicit what was already present in the non-Christian religions anonymously. This would be to ignore the startling newness of the revelation brought by Christ and to reduce the significance of explicit Christianity to merely putting a label on a jar that already contained the substance of all that Christianity has to offer. Needless to say, this is not what Rahner meant by speaking of anonymous Christianity. For him, it meant the being Christian of those who are living in the grace of Christ without explicit Christian faith. However, he acknowledged that the term Christianity could also be understood as de Lubac was taking it, and because of this ambiguity, he said he had no objection if others preferred not to speak of anonymous Christianity. De Lubac also objected to the description of non-Christian religions as ways of salvation. He argued that this would mean being led to believe that various religious systems, which might contradict one another in essential matters, would nonetheless be bearers of salvation, positively willed and given by God. On the contrary, he insisted that we must hold that there is but one divinely willed way of salvation, namely through the gospel of Christ. De Lubac's objection does not seem to give adequate consideration to the fact that Rahner insists that objectively all other religions have been abrogated by the advent of Christianity. The legitimacy which he attributes to other religions as ways of salvation is provisional and relative to the situation of those who, in good faith, fail to recognize Christianity as the religion which they must embrace in order to be saved. In the original edition of his book, Cordula Order der Ernstfell, Hans Urs von Balthasar 
severely criticized Rahner's theory of the anonymous Christian, claiming that it relativized the role of Christ and the mystery of salvation by making everything depend simply on the salvific will of God and on the human love of neighbor. This, he contended, would mean a radical devaluation of the theology of the cross and of Christian life based on the personal love of Christ and readiness to follow him in the decisive test of self-sacrifice. However, when the French edition of his book was being prepared, von Balthasar added a postscript in which he substantially moderated his criticism, directing it now at those who were popularizing Rahner's ideas and drawing extreme conclusions from them, more than at Rahner himself. Von Balthasar now expressed himself in agreement with Henri de Lubac, admitting the soundness of the theology underlying the term anonymous Christians, but still rejecting the notion of an anonymous Christianity. We have already seen that Rahner took this objection seriously and agreed that the term was open to misunderstanding unless one took it, as he did, simply to mean the being Christian without the name of those who were living in the grace of Christ without explicit Christian faith. Hans Kung did not make the distinction which these two theologians had made, but similarly dismissed the notion of the anonymous Christian as a theological fabrication by which the formula, no salvation outside the church, is saved by an elegant gesture which sweeps the whole of goodwilled humanity into the back door of the Holy Roman Church. In my view, this is a caricature of Rahner's theory, and I do not know that he ever dignified it with a published reply. He did, however, reply to a further objection which Kung and others have made, namely that it is impossible to find anywhere in the world a sincere Jew, Muslim, or atheist who would not regard the assertion that he is an anonymous Christian as presumptuous. Rahner's reply is that this term is intended to express a specifically Christian understanding of how non-Christians can be saved. He admits that it may not be an appropriate term for use in interreligious dialogue. He is also aware of the ambiguity involved in describing as anonymous Christians people who have no conscious wish to be Christians. But he points out the presence of ambiguity and other terms which are commonly used in Christian discourse, such as the use of the term sin in original sin. In any case, he declared himself ready to substitute another term, if one can be proposed which expresses equally well the truth which his term is intended to express. Max Seckler has criticized Rahner's description of non-Christian religions as ways of salvation on the grounds that it is not discriminating enough. It attributes a salvific function to other religions in a wholesale manner, without giving sufficient attention to the possibility that some of their beliefs and practices would be more likely to hinder than to help people on the way to salvation. Sackler notes that Rahner makes the salvation of anonymous Christians depend on their fundamental option to love their neighbor, since this involves the implicit love of God. The question, therefore, whether a religion is a way of salvation should depend on whether its beliefs and practices are conducive to making the fundamental option of loving one's neighbor. Seckler's objection to Rahner's theory is that it attributes a saving function to the practice of whatever happens to be the religion of a particular culture, independently of the specific nature of its beliefs and practices, which might hinder as well as help people toward salvation. 
While Rahner did not refer explicitly to Seckler's critique in the context, the following passage of his work, Foundations of Christian Faith, does provide the needed qualification of his assertion that non-Christian religions can be seen as ways of salvation. When a non-Christian attains salvation through faith, hope, and love, non-Christian religions cannot be understood in such a way that they do not play a role or play only a negative role in the attainment of justification and salvation. This proposition is not concerned about making a very definite Christian interpretation and judgment about a concrete non-Christian religion, nor is there any question of making such a religion equal to Christian faith in its salvific significance, nor of denying its depravity or its provisional character in the history of salvation nor of denying that such a concrete religion can also have negative effects on the event of salvation in a particular non-Christian. But presupposing all of this, we still have to say, if a non-Christian religion could not or may not have any positive influence at all on the supernatural event of salvation in an individual person who is a non-Christian, then we would be understanding this event of salvation in this person in a completely ahistorical and asocial way. But this contradicts in a fundamental way the historical and social nature of Christianity itself, that is, its ecclesial nature. We conclude our presentation of Rahner's thought with a brief account of the way in which he treats the question of the salvation of people who profess no religion at all. Rahner on the Salvation of Atheists he first observes that Vatican II, in its treatment of atheism, in Gaudium et Spes 19-21, made no mention of what had been the common judgment in Catholic moral theology, that no one could remain an atheist for long without committing grave sin. The Council does say, Undeniably, those who willfully shout out God from their hearts and try to dodge religious questions are not following the dictates of their consciences. Hence, they are not free of blame. Gaudium et Spes 19. On the other hand, the Council does not attribute such a sinful attitude to all those who profess to be atheists in the world today. This is clear from its statement. Divine providence does not deny the help necessary for salvation to those who, without blame on their part, have not yet arrived at an explicit knowledge of God, but who strive to live a good life thanks to His grace. Lumen Gentium 16. The optimism of Vatican II with regard to the universal possibility of salvation undoubtedly includes atheists as well as members of non-Christian religions. The problem then is to explain how people who never arrive at explicit faith in God can be saved, since it is a Catholic dogma that no one can be justified without faith. Rahner's solution for atheists is substantially the same one that he used for the members of non-Christian religions. The self-communication which is involved in the continual offer of grace which God makes to everyone, including atheists, can be understood as revelation, to which a person's graced response can be understood as an act of faith. As we have seen above, this positive response need not involve a conceptualized affirmation of God. It can remain at an unreflexive level of consciousness. To put it in Rahner's words, the person who accepts a moral demand from his conscience as absolutely valid for him and embraces it as such in a free act of affirmation, no matter how unreflected, asserts the absolute being of God, 
whether he knows or conceptualizes it or not, as the very reason why there can be such a thing as an absolute moral demand at all. The key point in Ronder's theory here is that the atheist's free decision to accept a moral demand of conscience as absolutely binding is really an act of implicit faith in God, since it is the person's response to God's revelation of himself in the offer of grace which makes this response possible. As long as such an act of implicit faith remains at the unreflexive level of consciousness, it can coexist with an explicit denial of the existence of God on the part of the same person. Nor is it certain that all professed atheists who persevere in the fundamental choice to love their neighbor will inevitably be led to explicit faith or explicit love of God. However, their love of neighbor is ultimately directed to God, even though they are not consciously aware of this. It is likewise directed toward Christ, whose paschal mystery is the unique source of the grace by which they can arrive at their salvation. Rahner insists that everyone who has a saving faith must have a relationship with Jesus Christ in such faith. He describes this as a Christological quest. They are seeking Christ in their faith and love, even though they do not know this. Secular Mediations of Grace and Salvation as we have seen above, Rahner insists that to deny to non-Christian religions a role in the salvation of those who belong to them would be to deny the social character of the economy of salvation. The question then is, what provides this social character of the economy of salvation in the case of atheists? In other words, what are the created mediations of saving grace for them? Rahner's answer is that while such created mediations of grace are always necessary, they are not, in every case, of the specifically religious kind. Secular reality can also provide the material for the decision in which a person effectively responds to the self-communication of God, which we call grace. The transcendent reference of man to God is mediated through categorical objects, at least in cases other than genuine mystical experiences. But this object does not necessarily have to be a religious concept. The transcendent reference to God can be found in the mediations of ordinary secular material, as long as man, by means of this material, freely comes to a position of complete responsibility and self-determination. This mediating categorical objectivity does not have to be an explicitly religious act. It can be formed by a particular moral decision in which a man is responsible for himself and accepts or rejects himself. Other Catholic theologians have described more explicitly than Rahner has done here the things that can serve as secular mediations of grace and salvation for people who profess no religion and consider themselves atheists. Yves Congar, for instance, has observed that among such people, one finds those who unselfishly devote their lives to such transcendent values as duty, peace, justice, fraternity, humanity. He describes such absolute values, which are worthy of unconditional love, as capable of serving as incognitos of God for those inculpably lacking any explicit religion. But of all such mediations of grace, he insists that the preeminent one is the mystery of the neighbor. It is the other person who is most worthy of self-sacrificing love. 
and through whom the atheist who offers such love reaches out to the God whom he does not know. Gustave Dills has developed the thesis that some kind of mediation of grace is available to everyone, describing various examples of individual and collective mediations through which, with or without any practice of religion, people can arrive at the attitudes of faith and love which are essential for their salvation. As examples of individual mediations, he mentions the law written in hearts, the seeds of the word, interior illumination, and conscience. As collective mediations, he names the covenants of God with humanity, the divine dispositions, general revelation, and non-biblical wisdom and prophetism. His thesis is that there is no one for whom God does not provide some such mediation, whether of a religious or a secular nature, whereby the person can respond to God in such a way as to reach salvation. These reflections of Congar and Thills should make it obvious that Karl Rahner is not the only Catholic theologian who recognizes that both non-Christian religions and secular realities can serve as mediations of grace and salvation for people who do not share Christian faith. It occurs to me that, by presenting only Rahner's thought in this chapter and mentioning the criticisms which some Catholic theologians have made of his theories, I may have left the reader with the impression that Rahner represents an isolated, or at least a minority, position on these questions among Catholic theologians. The fact is that, apart from questions of terminology such as anonymous Christianity, and with differences of emphasis and detail, Rahner's position that both non-Christian religions and secular realities must be recognized as serving as mediations of salvation for non-Christians is undoubtedly the position of mainstream Catholic theology today. In its favor, one can cite such representative Catholic theologians as Wolfgang Bernhardt's Yves Congar, Jacques Dupuy, Johannes Feiner, Pietz Franzen, Heinrich Freys, Walter Casper, Hans Kung, Joseph Ratzinger, Otto Semmelroth, Bernard Sesbu, Gustav Tills, and Hans Waldenfels. Earlier in this chapter, we mentioned the severe criticism which Hans Urs von Balthasar had directed at Rahner's theory of the anonymous Christian in the original edition of his work Cordula, which appeared in 1966. It seems a fitting conclusion to this chapter to note that 20 years later, von Balthasar wrote a book which has been published in English with the title, Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved. The thesis of this book is that there is nothing in Christian revelation which obliges us to believe that any human person has been or will be condemned to hell, and that, on the contrary, there are good grounds for hoping that all will be saved. One could hardly think of a more eloquent expression of the salvation optimism which Karl Rahner has described as one of the most extraordinary developments in Catholic thinking in modern times.